We're going to hear more of God's word for our lives from Luke chapter 23. This may sound, uh, this morning, uh, this um, passage may sound a little bit out of context because often it's a, a passage that's preached in the springtime of the year because it's an Easter passage or considered one. But this morning, it has much to teach to us um, about the world and its response to Christ. And I hope that um, many of you who are going through our Get Drenched study series are learning more about uh, who Christ is and that that can equip you then to engage more with the world around you in a a way where you you have more to offer, you have more to give to people who um, don't quite understand who Jesus is. Or, or have heard some things and maybe they've heard things that are either wrong or they've misunderstood or maybe they just haven't heard enough. And as we study God's word together, we are more deeply equipped then to share God's word with others. Um, how many of you are working through the Get Drenched studies? A lot of you? Awesome. Um, if this is unfamiliar to you, even though we've been going at this for several weeks, we still have plenty of books that we would love to give to you if you would like to learn more. They're available outside in the um, lobby or if you forget this morning to grab one and you want to grab one later this week, just uh, drop by here at the office or give us a call and we'll make sure that you get one for the purpose of really equipping us more deeply to understand who Christ is and speak of him to the world around us. And we certainly want to encourage you in all that. As we dig into this passage this morning, um, let's ask God's presence and power in our listening and in my speaking that he might be glorified in it all. Father, we ask that you meet us this morning in your word, this passage about what it means for the world to reject you and where our place is in that story. We pray, Father, that we can listen with open ears and open hearts today to what you want to say to us. If it is to encourage us, Lord, may we be encouraged. If it is to challenge us, us may we be challenged. If it is to discipline or, or really um, admonish us, even push us a little bit, Lord, your will be done. We pray, Lord, uh, I pray that my words glorify you, that in fact it's not me who speaks, but you, who, you do who instead, so that you might be glorified and might give to us what it is that we need. Lord, we pray these things all in Christ. Amen. Now, um, <clears throat> some of you may know, uh, I actually come from a very large family. I only have a younger sister and an older brother that are my direct siblings, but my father is one of nine He's the oldest of nine children, and my mother is the second youngest of nine. So you can imagine that I have tons of cousins. In fact, I think I have about 60 to 70 first cousins, many of whom I haven't seen in 20, maybe even 30 years. A lot of folks are out east. In fact, the big enclave for Elgersmas, like, there's none of us out here. I think I might be one of the only Elgersmas. I think Kristen and I are the only Elgersma family. Um, oh, I know, Gene, you're an Elgersma. You keep on reminding me of that. But your last name is Kim now. And my last name being Elgersma, I think I might be the only one in San Bernardino County for sure. And I know there's not a lot in Southern California. Our big enclave for Elgersmas, which I like to call Crazy World, is in southern Ontario, Canada. 
And so there's a whole ton of algorithms around there. That's really where our clan started and spread out all over the place, including my Uncle Bill. And I think I've spoken to my uncle, but I want to remind you a little bit of who my Uncle Bill is. My Uncle Bill is, um, he's, I don't know where he falls in the whole sibling range. He's one of my dad's younger brothers. And he is actually a professor at a college that I won't name in Iowa, okay? We'll just say it's a college in Iowa, some place where he's chosen to be. And because he's at this particular college in Iowa, he's an English professor there. Um, Over the years, because I run in some of the same uh, circles as people who go to this particular college in Iowa, um, that, that people have come back to me and said that they've met my Uncle Bill. And I will almost instantly ask them this question. So do you love him or do you hate him? Because really, in my experience, having been his nephew for my entire life, those are the only two responses that you can ask of people who've met my Uncle Bill. You either love the guy or you hate the guy. And I don't know why, because us algorithms are very sort of low-key, quiet, unassuming sort of people. We don't share our opinions or our thoughts very much, so I don't know why people would have such strong feelings for him. Um, but really, that's just who he is. He is this guy who, um, when you go into his classroom, you really know where he stands on any given thing. And if you don't know, all you have to do is ask, and you will clearly get how he stands for, thinks about, imagines dreams about, whatever thing. And for some people, the way he does it and how he is, they just adore it. And they love it. And they engage with him. And he's one of their support systems even while they're going through college. And all this stuff that is really, really good. But then there's other people who don't have that same response. Because he's actually, um, at this particular college, he has the record for failing the most students from his courses. Because if you can't do the work in his class, he says you shouldn't pass. And he makes that clear. And he's failed more than a couple students. He's given um, hard grades. And I know there are even some in the room who have some of those experiences with my Uncle Bill. And I'm sorry, I'm not my Uncle Bill, so you can't take it out on me. But that's just what he does. He draws out these strong feelings. And it's either this love feeling or this hate feeling. And in our text this morning from Luke chapter 23, we have a group of people who are in that exact same place. And we see their response to Christ this morning as he stands before Pontius Pilate and as he stands before Herod. We see their response to Jesus. And certainly we see that their response is equally strong, if not more strong. Enough so for them to say some words which are pretty harsh. And horrible words. Let's dig into God's word together. Verses 1 through 4 of Luke 23. Then the whole assembly rose. Remember this is when um, after Jesus has been arrested. And he's uh, starting to do his testimony before Pilate and Herod. Right near the end just before um, Good Friday and Easter. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying... We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? 
You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. So as we think about sort of the scope of people's response to Jesus, I want to begin with this first problem that people often have, and we see in this text, of how people respond to Jesus. And the first problem that we have is that Christ subverts power structures. So if there is something in place, Christ, by his very ministry and life and his call towards his people, subverts so many power structures, and that's the case in this text. And we see these people who are condemning Jesus using that as a charge in order for Pontius Pilate. Remember, Pontius Pilate is a representative of Roman rule, all right? So Rome is taken over Israel. He's the representative of that. And here they're making a claim against Jesus that Christ in his ministry is really subverting Roman rule. And he's doing it by telling people not to pay taxes. And if you want to see the reference for that, it's, it's really easy. It's back a couple pages. Luke chapter 20. And you remember that story, that's where um, they ask what we should, should we do about taxes? Jesus says, take out a coin. And he says, who's on the coin? They say, it's Caesar. He goes, give to Caesar what is to Caesar's and give to the Lord what is the Lord's. And these people are using that as a condemnation of Jesus that he's saying, don't pay taxes, which is actually not quite true because he said, if there's a picture of Caesar on it, give it back to Caesar. That's a tax. He's saying, you should pay your taxes. So don't ever use the scriptures to say you shouldn't pay your taxes, friend. But here, there, they, he's, he's telling them, you know, you have a responsibility to this. But because of the way he did it, they say, well, that's subverting the power structures and the power, uh, the authority. And so these people are, in their condemnation of Jesus, are really trying to, they know who they're talking to. They're talking to Pontius Pilate because Roman rule needed taxes, right? I mean, that's really what happened. Is they Rome would come into a place like Israel. There were a whole other series of places. They took over Greece. They took over significant parts of Spain. They went all the way up into England. Uh, and there were parts, uh, whenever they went into a place, what you did is you taxed the people. Because you could do that. You were in charge. You taxed the people, took that money back to Rome to establish and support your, your, your empire. So they're really saying, hey, Pontius Pilate, Jesus is trying to mess up Rome. He's trying to mess up your whole system, thinking that that would appeal to Pontius Pilate's sense of justice. But he doesn't agree, and he isn't involved. And the story continues, verse chapter, or verse 5. But they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. Hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Before a long time, because for a long time, he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and they mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. 
That day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. So the second problem that we have in people responding to Jesus, the first problem being Christ subverts power structures, which people are uncomfortable with. The second problem is Christ defies expectation. There are certainly expectations that the world have, has of what Christ should do, right? We, want to be, we don't want to accept what God does. We want to be prescriptive for God. Let me give you an example, like when we have something troubling in our life. Let's say, let's say we have a, a marriage that has some challenges. Our prayer to God, oftentimes in those challenges, is God make him like this, right? Debbie's prayed that prayer before, haven't you, Debbie? Or God make her do this. Don, you've prayed that prayer before, haven't you? Yeah, a time or two. We have this idea of we, in our prayers, we have, got, we have this plan for what God should do in our lives. I have that all the time. I have things that here's what you should do, God, right? Here's how things should go. But the problem is if I engage in my relationship with Christ, my relationship with God in that manner... When God, whose ways are higher than my ways, whose thoughts are higher than my thoughts, does things differently, what happens? What happens? I'm disappointed. I want God to do it differently. Or if his timing is different. And the problem that we have when we engage with people who don't know Christ is oftentimes these are people who've at one point or another had some level of faith and belief in God and in the, had some expectations about what God should do and God hasn't met him in the way that they want them to be met. And maybe that's us. Maybe even that's you. God, why, why did this illness kill him, kill her? Why did this relationship end? Why is my child like this? Why is my situation different than another's? I longed and prayed fervently for you to do this differently, but it didn't happen. See, we see Herod doing that. We see Herod, in a sense, saying, all right, Jesus, come in. Come in and show me your signs and wonders. I've seen that all over the place. I've, I've seen and heard about your miracles in Galilee. I've seen you do these things or heard about these things. You've, you've fed thousands. You've walked on water. You've healed so many. Come into my presence. And if you show me that, then perhaps I'll give you the time of day in my life. But Jesus is quiet. And he just simply stands there because that's not the will of his father in heaven that he would awe Herod with some sign or wonder. Instead, the will of his father in heaven is to walk through the next three days. And that's a better will than what Herod wants. And yet, Herod ridicules him. You aren't like I wanted you to be. And so often in our world, so many create the Messiah that they want. We create the Messiah we want. Do it this way, God. And if God doesn't do it that way, then we can ridicule or reject him. The world can ridicule and reject him. Because frankly, we know better, don't we? We've got to figure it out. 
We've got it lined up. Hey, friends, how's that working for us so far? Maybe for us to allow God to do his will in his work, in his time. Then we allowed God's power to exceed our expectations. There's also this miracle that God does in this part of the text that is so often missed, right? Pontius Pilate, Herod. One is the subject of another. Herod is a subject to Rome and to Pontius Pilate. Yes, he's a ruler in Israel, but he would hate having his power taken away. And yet at the end of this passage, what do we read? It says this. It says, that day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Christ gets involved. And yeah, he didn't say, hey, Herod, go make up with Pontius Pilate. But was the spirit present there? Sure it was. God doesn't do what Herod wants him to do, but he does bless him with the friendship of the one who is ruling him. As I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking so often about why we don't understand, um, why we don't understand persecution. So I was thinking about, here's, here's Christ, you know, in this moment. Um, and Christ is, is having everything taken away. Eventually, we know, not long, he's going to have his whole life taken away. That in this place, he's unjustly accused. In this place, he's unjustly persecuted. He's the only innocent one ever in all of history. He's never committed any sin. And yet, here he's in this place where he is, in a sense, being persecuted for being who he is. Well, he's not a Christian because he's Christ, but his, for being part of God's will. And I think so often, especially when we live in our culture, we say when somebody says to us, uh, you know, for example, we're coming up to that time, this, that lovely time of year, Christmas, right? But one of the things that I hate most about the Christmas season is when I start to hear this, that the culture and the government is trying to take Christ out of Christmas. Are we going to hear that this year? Are we going to hear that this year? Yes, we will. I'll tell you why, because there are Facebook posts from like eight, nine years ago that people repost every year saying that this is current news. It's often not current news, but it's how it works. And we say, because of these things, because of these things happening in this town or this school board or in this place, that they're going to take Christ out of Christmas. Somebody tell me how you can take Christ out of Christmas. I mean, really. How can you take Christ out of Christmas? I get it, Santa Claus parades instead of Christmas parades. I get it, we have Charlie, or not, we don't put Charlie Brown Christmas on, we put the Smurfs Christmas special on, which is just about happy times and fireside stuff, and not about, you know, the, the story uh, of Christmas that Linus speaks at the end of um, Charlie Brown's Christmas. But at the end of the day, how can we take Christ out of Christmas. I'll tell you how we can take it out. If we don't live into the truth of Christmas, that's how it gets taken out. Not because of culture. We're asking a culture that is not Christian to take, to take our view 
of what this thing is. Now, I know some of you are going to say it's a Christian nation. That's a long discussion. I don't want to get into the politics of that. But certainly our culture is not living into Christianness. And if that's the case, then for the world to say Christmas is like this, and for us to get mad because they say Christmas is like this, it shouldn't make us mad. It should make us passionate about making sure that Christmas is Christmas. It should make us fired up to make sure that when we pray Christmas songs or when we share about who Jesus is in our church, we throw the doors wide open and we turn the volume up to 11. That we make sure that with our lives and with our households and with our activities that we stand up against a persecution from a culture that doesn't believe what we believe. It's not persecuting us. It's being who they are. We need to be who we are and who we are has more power than who they are because we have the one who created the universe on our side. Let's live into that and see what the power of Christ in Christmas and in all of life does to a world that says it doesn't believe in him. It's up to the followers of Jesus for the church to live into that, to be more loving, to be more passionate about following Jesus, to be more, uh, to be a greater seekers of peace and hope and encouragement and justice. And when we live into that, believe me, we're not going to be confused to whether or not Christ is in Christmas because other people are going to be saying that louder than we are. Because they're going to say, they're going to be able to say, look at these people who are celebrating this weird Christmas thing that involves a manger and Bethlehem and shepherds and magi. Look at how they're living. And look at how their lives are transforming the world around them. People around them are more caring and loving, even with people they don't agree with or don't look like or don't act like. There's people in their communities who are, being, who are poor, who are being cared for. Widows and orphans are being loved and supported. The hungry have food. The homeless have shelter. That's, that's how we live against persecution. At least that's what we learn from history. Not long after these words are written in the Gospel of Luke, the church was persecuted to the point of even death. We're not dying, by the way. Let's be clear about that. Some places in the world, yes. Not here. What did they do in Rome? They lived it out. They lived it out hardcore. They weren't afraid of being followers of Jesus because they were fearful that culture would reject them. The culture had already rejected them. They just were who they were supposed to be. Friends, that's who we are. We are followers of Jesus. If we're going to follow the greatest commandment, we love the Lord our God with all, and we love everyone around us with all. And as that happens, the world will take notice. Yeah, we might get, we might get pushed back. Yes, we, we might even have trouble. Yes, that is the case. But remember, This side and this side, there's a big difference. This one has the creator of the universe. This one doesn't. I can trust in this side. Verse 13. 
Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and I have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod. For he sent him back to us, as you can see, has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. Now, when we read that portion of the story, it seems crazy to us, right? That this whole crowd of people would say, this murderer, a murderer. Someone who murdered other people and said, let's burn the city. That they would say, compared to this murderer who burned the city down, to Jesus, we like the murderer better. He's better for us. It just seems crazy, of course, doesn't it? But that's exactly the sort of passion that Christ brings out is really, really crazy thinking. And if you think, oh, you look around at the world and you say, oh, yeah, I see that all the time. I don't understand that phrase, right? I don't understand how somebody can go through the hard parts of life without Jesus Christ. How many of you have thought that? How, how is it possible that somebody would go through life without Jesus Christ? How hard it is. Maybe a death or an illness or that sort of thing. And we say, oh, I just don't understand why somebody can do that. But here's the thing. These are truths that are not just for those out there who don't know Jesus. They're remind, there to remind us about how we interact with Jesus. Because here's the thing. We say, oh, someone's saying, crucify him, crucify him. That's a horrible thing to do to Jesus. But let me ask this. How many of you are walking completely, fully, and always in the will and in the love of Jesus Christ? How many of you are doing that? Thank you for not putting your hands up. Because none of you are. And if none of you are then we are in some way living in enmity, meaning conflictual relationship with God. Because God says to us, I want you to be what? I want you to be holy. I want you to be perfect. I want you to have everything together. That's what he says to us. Now, he also, in the next breath, says, but you can't do that. You're a mess. At least I can say that for myself. You're a mess. But I can do it for you. And I can give you Jesus. And all that I ask is if you live in union with him, trusting him in the forgiveness of your sin. But the problem is, we so often don't do that, right? It means that then we live in faith all the time. We live in the truth of who Jesus Christ is for us all the time. But we don't. We think it's insane that somebody says crucify him. But we justify our own sin. Don't we? In some ways I wonder. 
Is our voice one of the voices in the crowd? In fact, we're going to dig into that right now. Passage closes with these words from 22 through 25. For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. Little aside note, don't you find that whole verse there really like startling? It says this, let's read it again. What crime is this committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and release him. You want to talk about injustice? Here's injustice. Pilate found nothing wrong, but oh, let's punish him anyways. Let's beat him up. That really was what he was talking about, and that's what they were expecting. Let's, let's beat Jesus up, send him back to you bloody, and hopefully that will stop your thirst for blood. All right? That's really what's going on here. So we talk about an innocent being condemned for our sin. Pontius Pilate found no sin in him. Passage continues. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into, the prison, into prison for insurrection and murder. The one they asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. It's an incredibly important pronoun. Surrender Jesus to their will. Here's why that's an important pronoun. Because I think that is indicative of what God does in the world. God has given the world the truth of Jesus Christ. God has given us the responsibility of sharing that truth, living that truth, and proclaiming that truth in all the world. And as we do that faithfully, people are going to hear about Jesus. How many of you have told somebody about Jesus? I hope you have. All of you should be able to put your hand up, and I believe that to be at least every month. All right, that we're telling somebody about Jesus in some way, shape, or form. But those of you who've told people about Jesus know this clearly. Not everyone that you've told believes, do they? In fact, oftentimes they reject what it is that you are saying to them. That's where this pronoun comes in. Because then for you to say, I could have done better. I, it was not my, I, I should have said this. I should have done that. I should have listened to Pastor Scott when we studied scripture more. I should have listened to that catechism class. I should have listened to that thing. Or I should have studied more when we did the Get Drenched series. Because if I would have known, if I would have known the right words to say, they would have believed. I, if I would have gotten it right, then they would have gotten it right. But friends, let me remind you that our job is to proclaim the gospel. After that, it's the Spirit's work. And this pronoun reminds us, again, the one they asked for, and, they, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Ultimately, it is not our responsibility when we have shared the gospel and others have not believed. It's their responsibility, not ours. But friends, don't let that stop you. 
Don't ever let that stop you from proclaiming it with your lives. This Christmas, proclaim Christmas with your life. Next Easter, proclaim Easter with your life. Every day, proclaim all of God's love for you with your life, in your neighborhood, in your families, in your homes, in whatever world that you're a part of. Now, this is where I'm going to poke you pretty hard. Get ready. We look at this story and we put ourselves in it somewhere, maybe. Where would you put yourself in the story? How many of you would put yourself as an innocent bystander who has tears in your eyes because Jesus is going to be crucified? Anybody? Some of you? How many of you put, your, uh, put yourself in the story as just somebody who heard about it because you weren't going to be there that day? Anybody? How many of you are the crowd yelling crucify him? Some of you are okay with that. The rest of you have no idea where you are, I think. Right? Where do we fit? Um, a couple of years ago, Disney released the movie, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's actually uh, the film version of a story that's been around for a long time from C.S. Lewis. It's at the start of a series of stories, um, that, the, the Chronicles of Narnia. And at the end of the first book, at the end of the first movie, there's this incredible scene. It's the scene of the stone table. And if you've seen the movie or if you've read the book, I want you to recall that scene. In the scene, there's this thing that happened. There's this person who went in through the wardrobe into Narnia. Uh, His name is Edmund. And Edmund, when he goes into Narnia, ends up getting, um, gets, gets, in essence, he gets enslaved to, I think it's the White Witch, right? He gets enslaved to the White Witch. And because he's been enslaved to the white witch and he's promised the white witch his his allegiance and his fealty, um, he's in bondage, really. And there's no way for him to get out of bondage. He can't break his promises to the white witch. But there's another power in Narnia called Aslan. Aslan is a lion. And Aslan tries to figure out, okay, how is it that we can break this bondage that Edmund is in to the white witch? And he realizes that there's no way to break that bondage except if there's blood. And there actually has to be death. And if there is death, then Edmund is no longer in bondage for what he has said to the white witch. So Aslan says, I'll be the sacrifice. It's Christ's story retold. And if you remember the scene, or if you in your mind can picture it, there's this stone table. It's sort of like Stonehenge, except much more, um, it's got a lot more writing, a lot more detailed. It's this place where in the middle is this huge stone table surrounded by monoliths on this one hill overlooking a whole area. And Aslan is going to this place, and there's the white witch there, and there's this whole series of evil beings, like goblins and orcs. And, and really grotesque things, giants that are like screaming and yelling, Aslan is going to die. We're excited because Aslan is going to be gone. This other power in this world is no longer going to be around. And Aslan goes and he goes up to the table and they bind him and they sh- uh, cut off his mane and suddenly the white witch takes a knife and plunges it in and he dies. If you know the story, there's two little girls who watch from a distance, Lucy and Susan. 
And they watch to see what happens here. And they weep as they see what it is that has happened to their hero, Aslan. And I think in that story, when we think about that story being the story of the cross itself, we picture ourselves as Susan and Lucy. But I don't think that's true. I don't think it's true for me. Because I think I'm actually one of the monsters beside the table saying, cut him, kill him, crucify him. And you know why? Turn in your Bibles. 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. says this there, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a, a what? Say it louder. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Say that again. Listen. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now you're going to tell me I don't hate anybody. You're going to tell me that there is no one that I feel that strongly about. But I want you to think about some of the feelings that you felt over the last three, six, six months, last year, last three years in this country. You're telling me that there has never been a time when the political stuff has come up that you thought to yourself, I hate that. I hate that person. I hate that thing. Get them off the air. Get them out of office. Get her to stop talking. He needs to be fired. She needs to be in jail. He needs to be impeached. Now, I'm not saying that those people are Christ because they're not perfect. And sometimes, maybe they need to be taken off the air. And sometimes they need to be impeached. And sometimes they need to be out of whatever job it is that they have. And sometimes they need this or that and the other thing. It doesn't matter. And I'm not going into the specifics of any politic, political party or person. What I'm saying here is the motivation that we have so often comes from a level of some sort of hatred. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. Anyone who hates a brother or a sister yells, crucify him. Kill him. Get him away. One of the huge challenges that we have in our world is that we have drawn lines of hate And you may not think that you are guilty of it. But I can tell you this. I've been listening to a whole bunch of stuff, reading a whole number of books. I I have audible.com, which is really dangerous for a person like me. I listen to books when I drive sometimes. I listen to books when I walk, when I do different things. And I'm learning so often that there are things out there where I may not even intend to, but I hate I hate that this 
person is doing this. I hate that this person is condemning me in some way, is holding a mirror up for me to see some of my own challenges and problems and misconceptions. I hate sometimes in some little way another. And when I do, I'm the crowd. I'm the crowd in front of Pontius Pilate. I'm a monster at the stone table. And for me to be reminded of that. So here's the challenge, friends. Maybe the present is your problem. It could be. I understand that. For you to hate them, 1 John 3.15. Maybe CNN or a personality on there. I'll tell you right now, I'll tell you one of my challenges. I'm being pretty transparent here. Senator Dianne Feinstein. She's hard for me right now. But I'll tell you this. I have been praying more for that woman than I have ever. Because I don't want to hate. I don't want to hate anybody. I don't want to hate those people who are so in disagreement with me. And I don't want to hate those people who are so in disagreement with me on whatever spectrum. I don't want to hate somebody else because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity. I don't want to hate somebody else because of of their view on whatever. I, I want to love. I don't want to be in the crowd. I don't want to be the one who screams those words, not with my mouth, but with my life. And friends, one of the challenges that we have as we go through Christmas is there's a lot of people looking at the church saying, with their lives, they're standing around the stone table as the knife is raised with a smile on their face. We can do better. We can love better. We can proclaim with our lives better that this one who is an innocent being crucified, is love. And because he's given all of that to us, we're going to love too. We're not going to do that on our own, friends. We're going to do that through the Spirit's presence, the Spirit's power, and the Spirit's help. Yes, but part of it is us engaging and saying, yes, I want to be different. I don't want to hate. I don't want to be a murderer. I don't want to be somebody who rejects this or hates that or whatever. I'm going to be a person who loves and that is the testimony of my life. Let's pray. Father, you have given us this story to challenge us put ourselves in it. Where are we? We, 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 idealize and we want to say we're, we're, we're not in the crowd. We're not the one who put you on the cross, but Lord, that's not true. We know that because we know that our sin puts you there. But even with our lives, Lord, as we think about the world around us, as we think about some of the, the things that, that um, 
challenge us as followers of Jesus, as we think about some of the things that challenge our thinking, the politics, the way that culture is, the divisiveness in our world, where some people just seem to hate others, where some people, by their lives, make it difficult for others to live and have purpose and have joy and have life. And we pray, Father, in Jesus' name, that we can reject that way, that we can instead take up the new way, the new way of love, the new way that brings things together, brings people together, brings communities together, not in our power, but because that's what you long for. You have said in your word that you have come to restore all things, to make all things new. Lord, we know that that is something that will happen someday soon, someday, Lord, when you return, that that will come in its, in its fullness. But we also know, Lord, that that we're a part of that now. That our lives give us an opportunity, a testimony to be a part of your work in this world, redeeming things. We pray, Father, that we are vehicles of your redemption, that we are a means of your spirit, that your power shows out through us in transformative ways. That, Lord, our voice, instead of raised, saying, crucify him, says instead, Glory to God and to the Lamb who was slain to take away the sin of the world. May that be what our lives, not just what our words say, but what our lives are. Lord, we pray all these things in Christ. Amen.